Father, in your word, you've uh, given us all we need, as you tell us. That the word of God, Father, is not simply inerrant. It is sufficient. It is all that we would need for all that you may have us experience in this world. Father, you had available to you any word that you wished to speak. You could have said anything you wanted, Father. Through your Son, through the Holy Spirit, you could teach us anything you desire. So we must understand, Father, we must believe that what has been recorded in this book for our benefit is all we need. For if we needed more, it would have been provided. And particularly, Father, as you tell us in the book of Hebrews, through your Son, you have spoken to us in these last days that we might know more of you through him, we might see you reflected in him, but by his words, by his life lived out, by his sacrifice on the cross, we could begin to understand, perhaps, the great love you have for your creation. And Father, we've come into your word again this morning, obediently and expectantly, because we do trust that your word is sufficient. Though we don't understand, perhaps, how it will address my needs today, We aren't sure, Father, that the words that will be studied and spoken today will necessarily uh, touch on those key issues in my life and on those key questions and decisions that are facing me. Uh, I'm not sure, Father, how they will relate. Maybe I won't know even as the teaching itself concludes. I must trust, Father, that what you have planted in the Word for us here today will take root in us and do its good work, perhaps even without our understanding it. But in any case, Father, we trust it to do what you have willed it to do. For we know, Father, that it will not go out and return void. And as it goes out this morning, Father, I pray it would do the good work you had intended for it. And, Father, I pray that as I speak those words, that that I might not be in the way of your message. That the message, Father, that you prepared would come through me and by me. And and perhaps because of my effort and study, but, but not due to me, Father. Not as though it were my ideas or thoughts, Father. Not as though it is me teaching, but rather you, the Holy Spirit, teaching through me. Let that be the way you would use me this morning, Father. And let us continue, Father, to praise you in our time of study, even as we did in our time of worship this morning. For we give thanks in all things, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're moving, as I said, into chapter 11. Chapter 11 of Luke has been... As I count it, we're, we're coming up rapidly on the one-year point in this study, although I'm not sure. I might be a little premature on that. It was sometime in the spring or early summer we got into Luke, so that's about a chapter a month or so. That's, that's not too bad for me, I guess, but uh, the bad news is it's a 24-chapter book. Now, I don't, for some of you, that may be more than you signed up for, but uh, chapter 11 of Luke is uh, a pivotal chapter. It is, along with what follows in chapter 12, really the pinnacle, the climactic moment in the gospel message in one sense. Now, I understand, of course, that the crucifixion, many would argue, is the climax of the gospel, and for good reason. But but in in another sense, this is a climactic point in the book, because it's in this moment that we're going to see Jesus' ministry change in a very important way, from a ministry of offering the kingdom, offering the nation of Israel their Messiah, to one of having been rejected by them, now looking only forward to his death on the cross, effectively withdrawing his offer of the kingdom and moving ever so steadily toward his death. This will occur later in chapter 11. Now, we're not going to cover that today. We'll get to that more than likely in a week or so. But today in chapter 11, there are some important introductory issues, and and really it's a tie into what we studied last week. If you remember in, in what we ended with last week, we looked at Jesus explaining essentially two aspects of our relationship with the, with the Godhead, with the Trinity, and with each other. It came as a function of his teaching on the two commandments, the two greatest commandments, and the question from the lawyer on how it is that he could inherit eternal life. And he, he was told by Jesus that, number one, we need to understand that we are to love our God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. And then secondly, love our neighbors, we love ourselves. And he gave two examples of those two Commandments. One, as you saw at the end, with Mary and Martha, and then earlier one with the Good Samaritan. What you see now as we begin chapter 11 is essentially a follow-on to that earlier discussion. Remember, the writer, as he wrote this gospel, didn't put chapter headings. We've said that many times. That came later. 
So if you were to take this book and remove all the chapter and verse numbers and just put it together as a single block of text, you would see this flowing together very nicely. In chapter 11, he's going to teach the disciples now how to relate to the Father. Whereas in the end of chapter 10, he told them how to relate to each other as neighbors, how to relate to Jesus himself sitting at his feet, learning from him as he gives the word. That was the picture we saw with Mary. So we've understood how to relate to one another, how to relate to Jesus. Now at the beginning of chapter 11, he says, and here's how you relate to the Father. But because the Father is all spirit and we do not see him, our one way to relate to the Father specifically is through prayer. And that is now the focus as we open up in chapter 11 today. Let's read the opening verses. Luke chapter 11, verse 1. It happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. Well, here we find Jesus asked by his disciples how to pray. It's a very simple question. It's a very natural question. And when Jesus hears their question, he responds with what we typically call the Lord's Prayer or the Our Father, some people call it. And it's... A version of the prayer, this prayer itself, the Our Father, is probably one that most of us have memorized at one point in time. Depending on our faith tradition, depending on what churches we may have gone to, if we went to one at all as a child, at some point I'm imagining we probably learned to memorize this prayer, although this may not be the version you remember. The version you're probably more familiar with comes out of the only other gospel to provide this prayer, and that is the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 6. That's the typical version most people learn to memorize and recite. How many of you can do it with me? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses or debts, depending on what churches you grew up in, and lead us not, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And some conclude with the remaining verses out of Matthew. For thine is the kingdom, power, glory, forever. Amen. Why is it we all know that prayer, or most of us anyway, know how to memorize and say that prayer? Why was that prayer something that at an earlier point in our life somebody suggested we memorize? Well, the obvious and easy first answer is because Jesus gave that specific pattern, it seems. Uh, Then we're talking now again about the one in Matthew in this case. He gave that to the disciples in answer to their question about how to pray. Millions of people, I'm sure, have memorized that prayer. So, as we come to these verses, I want us to take a moment to examine what Jesus was teaching the disciples, what he meant by his answer to them, and what we're expected to do with it. What what was Jesus expecting his disciples, and more specifically us today, to do with the answer he gave the disciples to that question? Let's go into that moment in your minds just for a moment. As the disciples were making this request of Jesus, it's really no different than any other student coming to any teacher in any context, really, and asking for instruction on some important discipline in their field. I mean, this is essentially the field of ministry, if you will, maybe, or just the field of being a faithful disciple in any context, whether it's a disciple in this sense, literally, as they were disciples of Jesus, or us today, a disciple of our faith. These men understood, probably from their upbringing, And now again from watching Jesus as we heard in prayer, they understood that prayer was an important part of the discipline that had to go with their walk of ministry. So they obviously understood its importance. That's why they asked him, teach us to do it the way we should. Why do we pray? Why would he even expect them to pray? Why are we expected to pray? Well, the answer here again probably came to you in Sunday school. It's our dialogue with the Father. But I want to emphasize the word dialogue for just a moment. Because as we study the pattern, as we understand the answer... It's a good opportunity for us to just examine for at least a moment prayer in general, right? We don't talk about prayer every time we come into this room. It's a good opportunity. The scripture presents it to us this morning. It's a dialogue. It's not a one-way conversation. It's not you talking to God, and it's certainly not just a conversation in your own head. If I just speak to myself in my head for a while, then I'm praying. That may be kind of an early way of looking at it as, as somebody may begin in the very first stages of their walk with God to try to pray. They may think of themselves as just... I'm just talking to myself here. What good is this? That's a natural sort of starting point because we don't have any experience to draw on as we get going in this. 
But it is not that, and it is not a one-way conversation. It's a time when we speak to God, and then he, in turn, as we submit ourselves to him, answers and speaks back. And, and I know that it's probably true for all of you, it is for me anyway, that there's not an audible response. I think the reason we have stories like Moses in front of the burning bush or other men like him who heard from God in an audible way, or at least it seems that it came in an audible way, the reason we have these stories is because they are notable. They are the exception. They are special moments that God chose to, to bring himself to a man in a new way, in a different way. By and large, though, men did not hear God's voice and we don't hear his voice today. That's not his desired way to speak to us. We can hear him speak, though, as we devote ourselves to prayer. It comes down to two things. It comes down to our approach and our attitude. Our approach and our attitude. And we're going to look at both of those. You could also sum it up as our effort and our expectation. We're going to look at all of those today as we look through these verses. In verse 1, for example... We see the discussion is in the even beginning. It ensues because the disciples see Jesus praying. We talked about this before, and I don't intend to repeat this part of the teaching, but I still find it remarkable every time I come across that kind of a statement in Scripture that Jesus, the Son of God, stopped and prayed. I've always believed as the Son of God, He would have always had a constant communication open with the Father. They're one and the same according to how Scripture describes them. How could they ever not hear each other? And yet, as we said before, that the fact that he took the form of man meant that he voluntarily cut off that communication in the way that he had, had been known to, to it, the way it had been known to him earlier. And in place of it, he had to rely on what you and I rely on, the Holy Spirit becoming a conduit, if you will, for a dialogue with God through prayer. And he made prayer a constant companion in his ministry. You won't, I mean, I would argue if you go through the scripture, just through the gospels, paging and through the whole thing, looking for instances when he prayed, you'll, finally, you'll hardly find a page when it doesn't say that he prayed. It was a constant companion to his ministry. He looks for opportunities day and night, it seems, to pray. And so naturally, at some point, he's been praying all this time. The disciples say, hey, let us in on this. Show us how to do this. And in verse 2, he answers them. And he answers them by starting with the words, when you pray. How easy it would be to pass by that simple introductory phrase. Excuse me. No, the other way around. It's very common. Which begs the question. Why is it when Jesus prayed, it prompted this question? In their day, prayers were a constant part of their normal ritual faith. Different times of day were set up, different days of the week, different kinds of prayer. They memorized many things and made them part of prayer. Prayer was a very constant part of their life. But for some reason, what they saw Jesus doing in his prayer prompted them to say, teach us a prayer. Now, some commentators have gone into the verses at this point and said, well, their reference to John is an indication of what used to take place between disciples and their uh, rabbis. And that was that a certain rabbi would develop certain prayers all his own, teach his disciples his prayers, and then you would be known by who your rabbi was by virtue of what prayers you used. It's almost uh, like a, a certain kind of teaching style brought certain prayer and that you know, made your ministry notable. So some have said, well, maybe all they were doing here was asking for a special prayer from Jesus, much like John had given his disciples some unique prayers of his own. It could be true. I see it differently, though. Personally, I believe that what was different was the fact that Jesus' prayer seemed to be far more meaningful, far more of a true communication with the Father, more heartfelt, more sincere, more something. And it drove them to say, you know what, if that doesn't look like what we do. That's not just some surface chanting of words. There's something more there. Teach us how to pray like you pray. That would be my assumption. I think that's what the text supports. Jesus starts by saying, when you pray. The word when is the word I want to focus on just for a moment. Hoten in the Greek. It implies by the tense, by the tense of the word in Greek, it implies not if you pray, not should you decide to pray, not you know, if you find time to pray, when implies a constant, continuous, non-stop prayer. You know, the obvious thing to know here is that he's already presuming that we know that prayer is supposed to be something we do, right? He's saying, I know you're going to pray. I know you're supposed to pray. So when you do it, here's how you do it. I find that interesting only because in our lives, if you're like me, and I have to speak really from my own personal experience here, because as I was teaching this in my mind through this preparation time, I really felt like this was all about me. Uh, which is to say, I don't pray enough. It really felt to me that God was taking me into the scripture at this moment and saying, you know, prayer should be a bigger part of your life. 
and it's not enough in your life. And so I'm going to give you an opportunity to really concentrate for at least a moment on prayer, on the need for it, the style of it, the purpose of it, etc. But maybe first and foremost, the when of it. Are you praying when you should be praying? In a Christian household, if you've grown up in one, and I'm going to use the word Christian sort of nominally, whether it was really true heartfelt Christianity or whether it was just going through the motions Christianity, which is unfortunately the kind of family I had when I grew up. And in that time of growing up in that family, you you probably learned that there are certain times you pray. You could all list them with me, right? Before meals, when you go to bed, in church, and then I guess if, if there was uh, some really significant emotional event in your life, you might throw an extra prayer in around that moment, right? Kind of as, as some, like, for example, before a pop quiz at, at, at school, you know, then you get a quick prayer in right before the test. That was it. Prayer came in those kinds of moments. So we learned to associate prayer with activities, certain events, certain things triggered prayer. And those were the good times to pray. And they're fine times to pray. I wouldn't stop praying at those times. But really... They're just convenient reminders of the need to pray. They're not the reason you pray. You see the difference? You know, if we're not careful, we tend to associate the occasion for prayer with the purpose for prayer. For example, you might begin to think, I pray because I'm thankful for this meal. I pray because I'm in church. But you know what? That's not why you pray. That shouldn't be why you pray. You don't pray because you're thankful for your meal. You're thankful for your meal because you know all good things come from God. And because all good things come from God, you are thankful to him in a general sense. And because he is your father, because you're thankful for all that he's doing for you, you want to express that thankfulness constantly as an outflowing of the experiences you have in his grace and mercy and provision. So when you sit down to eat, it's a reminder of the fact that you're thankful. It's not the reason you should be thankful. Because you know why? If you do it that way, if you think it's the reason that you're thankful, then the moment you don't have a meal, you'll feel justified in withholding your thankfulness. You'll begin to measure your love and appreciation for God on whether or not he's providing. And that's irrelevant. Paul says, be thankful in all things. And he, by the way, knows what it's like to be in a situation where you don't have food, where there aren't good things happening to you. And he didn't let him stop him from being thankful. So one of the things God spoke to me as I'm sitting here is stop picking the good moments to pray. Stop picking the times when you feel like he's done something for you. So now you're almost reciprocating in the same way that you say thank you to somebody who gives you something you want. It's conditional thankfulness, even though you may not have seen it that way, even though you may not have thought of it that way. Your behavior, if you pray like that, if you pray like I often did or do, is really reflecting that subconsciously maybe. How many of you are thankful in the moment that something bad happens and are meaningful and you mean it? In fact, you don't just say it, but you actually feel meaningful. It's a meaningful prayer. You know, you you have a car accident and as you're sitting in the car with the hood crumpled up in front of you and you're mad and you're... Would you think to stop in that moment and say, thank you, Lord, that you're going to give me this experience? Because in in all things, you're going to turn it to good. There's something good about to come out of this. I'm going to meet someone I don't know. Uh, I'm going to recognize that I need to drive slower. Uh, Something I'm going to do out of this is going to be good and it's going to be to to my benefit. And I'm thanking you now before I even know what it is. I don't do that, so don't look at me. I'm just saying, wouldn't we be better off if we looked at life that way? Isn't that what God's calling us to do? So when you pray, he says, here's some things you should know. But the when is spoken with an expectation that it will be a constant part of of your life. The Greek word there implies non-stop continuous action when you pray. I like to make it a comparison sometimes, praying to God, dialoguing with God. I like to make a comparison to uh, another kind of relationship, dialoguing, for example, with your spouse. You know, if, if I only spoke with my wife because I needed information from her, or if I only told her I loved her or thanked her when she did nice things for me, what, number one, what kind of relationship would I actually have out of that? And number two, what kind of things am I communicating to her without words? What what kind of things am I telling her about how I think of her and about what our relationship means to me? If I only speak with my friends when I need something. Okay, yeah, I actually do these things. You're right. But that's not the point. Okay? I I do slip into those selfish patterns. And they are selfish. They're self-absorbed. And I know they're wrong. And, and in teaching over this and being convicted by it, I want, to, I want to address those issues in my life. But the same is true with our relationship with God. It's just that because he's not standing us next to us in a physical way, 
showing the hurt in his face the way a friend or a, or a spouse would to our treatment, we aren't given that instant reminder of it. But if we go back into his word, we remember it. If you only pray when there's an urgent need or because he's come through in some specific way, then you're treating God no better than if you did that with your spouse or a friend. So when Jesus says pray, he means prayer should be an ever-present, ongoing part of our daily lives. Paul says in Philippians 4.6, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And so we pray because he calls us to pray, and we don't need any more reason. Because you know what? We're always going to have needs. He fulfills the one you have today, there'll be a new one tomorrow. We pray because he's revealed himself to us, and we pray to know his will in our life. That's what Jesus is saying here. Now let's look at the specifics he gave the disciples. He gives essentially the answer to them in the form of a very specific prayer. He gives them a prayer in answer to their question, how to pray. You notice that? That's kind of an interesting thing all by itself. He doesn't say, okay, kneel down, make sure you're kneeling. Make sure you hold your hands like this. You know, he does, there are other places in Scripture where he does talk about going to your closet to pray. He does give more specific direction about the how. But what's interesting here is he doesn't do any of that here. There's really no how in this response. It's simply an example. He gives a prayer in response to their question, teach us how to pray. Let's examine the specifics, but I, I want to start with the first word, Father. He says, Father, hallowed be thy name, or be your name in the way that it's written in a more modern version. So the first thing to note is, we pray to who? And this is actually an interesting question for me, because growing up, I often had that question. Am I praying to Jesus? Am I praying to the Father? Am I praying to the Holy Spirit, because he's the one I pray through? I, you know, both, all of them? Do I just got to mention them all at one point in there to get them all covered? I didn't know quite what to do, and no one ever told me at any point, here's the specifics of who you pray to. And Jesus does that here. It's to the Father. Within the Trinity, Scripture is consistent in demonstrating that it is the Father who is the audience for our prayers. The Father and the Father alone. The Spirit, we know, gives us the words we pray. We hear that in Romans 8.26. Jesus, by his sacrifice on the cross, gives us the very opportunity to approach boldly before the throne with our prayers. We hear that in Hebrews 4.16. But both of them are simply enabling us to reach the Father. So the Father is ultimately the audience for our prayers. He is the one we approach. He is the one who hears our petitions. So it's not to say that the whole Trinity is not involved. It is to say, however, that when you sit and you try to imagine, who am I talking to? It's clear out of Scripture. You're speaking to the Father, just as Jesus did. As you look at it, it's Father as in the sense of Abba, Father. The word in Greek is pater. That's where we get paternal from. But it's a Father in the intimate sense of a Father. And in Arabic, we'd say Abba. This is an endearing term. Like, this is the same term a person would have gone up to their earthly father and used. Father. In the same exact sense. Someone who desires to care for his children. Someone who's loving. Someone who's caring. It's different than what the disciples would have been taught. Under the traditional ways of praying in that day, you never approached the Father with that kind of an endearing term. God was always seen as uh, fierce, as mighty, as a warrior, as unapproachably holy. And he is all those things. He remains those things today. But he's also a loving father. That never came through in the Jewish teaching of how to pray. They lacked that whole appreciation for, this, for what is also the loving side of God. And what Jesus says is when you pray to the Father, here's the term he chose. He chose to come in through the avenue of an earthly, of picturing an earthly father. That's the way to see the Father in heaven. And then the part I wanted to cover, the name is hallowed. The name is holy. We don't use the word hallowed very much today. The word in the Greek is hagiazo, hagiazo, which means holy or consecrated. Holy is your name. It's simply an expression of praise to the Father for his holiness. But it's interesting that it's his name that gets praised. In, in that culture, we've said this here as you've studied Genesis with me in the past, we've said that a name in the Eastern culture was a very important thing. It embodied that person's reputation. You know, we talk about having a good name today. That actually comes out of centuries and centuries of history where if you went back far enough, you found people who actually thought that. Today, we're not so worried about whether our name is considered trustworthy or not. People talk about it, but they really don't care. In that day, it was significant. It made the difference between being able to do business or not. The difference between having family or not. Being able to marry or not. Your name was an embodiment of all your attributes, your reputation, all your characteristics. 
And when we pray, we're to see God's name as revered for who he is. Now, what's interesting here is this is a petition. You look at it at first, you see, Father, hallowed be thy name. It's a statement. In the Greek, it's not. It's a petition. It's a request. If it were written in English, you put a question mark at the end in the sense of, please, would you make your name hallowed? Would you make your name holy? And the sense of it is, in the whole earth, in all the, in all the creation, let your name be hallowed. Can we say that today? I walk outside this door and find countless places just in San Antonio where God's name is no, not only not hallowed, it's blasphemed. The, the request here in your prayer is, fill the earth with the glory of your name. Be glorified in your creation. We know that day is not here, but we also know it is a day to come. Out of Scripture, we are told that there is going to be a future fulfillment. In fact, the term, hallowed be thy name, is using the aorist tense of the Greek verb. Aorist is a tense we don't have in English. It's a kind of conjugation of the verb that we don't do in English. But in the Greek, when you conjugate in the aorist tense, you're talking about a future specific moment. Something to happen in the future, but it happens in a moment, not continuously. Future specific fulfillment. So you're praying for the future fulfillment of what God has promised in his word. That is that one day his name will be glorified in the entire earth. All creation will hold his name to be holy. And you pray for that moment. If you want to put it in very specific terms, you're praying for the new heaven and the new earth to come to the, to, to the earth. At the end of Revelation, you hear about this in chapter 21, 20 and 21. And fill the earth with God's glory. That's what you're praying for in a very specific sense. It's not inappropriate to also simply see it as a praise in God's name. That's true as well. But it looks forward to that future day. Then he says, your kingdom come, which that's where I was going a moment ago. That's what's so interesting. Your kingdom come now follows immediately after this declaration. I want to look forward to the day your name is glorified. And, Father, by the way, your kingdom come. This is a petition again, a request again in the aorist tense, looking forward again to that future fulfillment when his kingdom will arrive on earth. Anytime you see a reference in Scripture to God's future kingdom, like it is here, there's only one kingdom in mind. We're talking specifically about the millennial kingdom, the messianic kingdom, another way to put it, the thousand-year reign on earth that we hear about in Revelation and elsewhere. And if this kingdom were already in place, some would argue that today the kingdom already exists via the church. That's a, a view of eschatology. If that were true, then the prayer makes no sense. Because it's aorist tense. If it were true that we have a kingdom now that's everlasting, we wouldn't be praying yet again today, your kingdom come. We would say, your kingdom's here. Praise to your kingdom which is here. Something like that. So he asks us to petition God for his kingdom to arrive. Now, before we go on to the rest of the prayer, have you noticed something interesting about the pattern so far? How do you think of a prayer? What is a prayer? It's a petition. We've said that, but... When you pray, you're effectively asking for something to happen, right? Now, tell me if this isn't true. In your mind, as you make that request, you don't know if it's going to happen or not, do you? I mean, it's natural when you ask God for something that you're not clear necessarily uh, at what the answer is going to be. Yes, no, I don't know. So I'm asking. But the first two things Jesus said you should include in prayer are foregone conclusions. I mean, why do we need to pray, for example, that his name be glorified in all the earth? Why do we need to pray that his kingdom come? Isn't it going to happen anyway? I mean, are we saying that if we don't pray for it, it may not happen? That's hardly true. His word has already said it would happen. can't change his word. So, what's the point? What's the point in praying for something that God's already determined to see happen? For example, in Philippians 2.10, Paul says, At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are on heaven and on earth and under the earth. It's a foregone conclusion. One day the whole earth will bow at the name of Jesus. His name will be holy. And likewise, Ezekiel describes in detail the coming of Christ's, of, of the millennial kingdom, of Christ's reign on earth. Revelation 20, verse 6 tells us exactly how it happens. So, as I say, why pray for these things? Why, why are we going to be including in our prayers petitions for things that are already going to happen? And it's in this dilemma that we learn something critically important about prayer. And it will continue as we move through the rest of the verses. But the begin, just to state it up front, our prayers are, are not about persuading God to do something. This may challenge you a little bit. It, it, it has for others as well. But I have never found Scripture to change this view. It's so consistent, I find. We're often being told to pray, though prayer is not about persuading God to do something. His mind is not subject 
to being changed by us, by his creation, he determines to do what he determines to do. His word states that. And he has known since the foundations of the universe how things would play out in the course of history. He's determined what would happen. Scripture tells us this over and over and over again. I didn't have time today to bring through all the times in Scripture you hear him saying essentially that. His will will be done and not ours. Which is why in Matthew's account of this prayer, there's an important addition. He says, after he says, your kingdom come, what's the next phrase? Your will be done. Your will be done. That should be part of our prayer too. We're to pray that he would align our will with his will. Think of his will as just a train moving down the tracks and we're sitting on a sidecar asking him to join us. He's saying, "Mm, no, wrong way. You join me. You pray to align yourself with his will. Now, that doesn't mean you come into prayer with no requests. You're going to see here in a moment he has a very specific instruction to us about bringing our requests. But I want you to look at them a little more closely with me when we get there. We bring our petitions to him even before we know his will because that's often where we start. But in the course of our prayer life, what Scripture is going to teach us is we should pray for his will, for his plan, not our own, and then allow the Spirit to conform our will to his as we seek him in prayer. And as you mature, and I find this to be true in my walk, as I mature in my spiritual walk, I'm going to find myself increasingly praying for his will, knowing his will so that it is my prayer, agreeing with his will, actually wanting the very thing he wants. Not because I'm making myself want it, but because... I'm getting my train car, if you will, onto his track. It is where I want to go. Whereas a year ago, six years ago, whenever, I never would have wanted that. I would have been off on my own. So he begins, Jesus begins by saying, pray for God's name to be revered, pray for his kingdom to come, and then he goes into the next section, which are earthly needs. Things that you and I probably bring to prayer regularly. These are more the things we think of when we think of coming to God in prayer. For example, pray for your daily bread. Give me this day my daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. It's a simple expression of our desire for daily provision. We all share this desire. The phrase in the Greek, again, it suggests day by day, enough for each day and no more. Give me my rations for today would be another way to put it. I mean, yes, they ate bread in that day, but that's not all they ate. I don't want you to get the impression these people were you know, scraping up bread off the ground. They were poor and they were rich and they were everything in between. This is, this is a fairly sophisticated culture. We tend to make anything prior to about 1700s caveman-like in our minds. It's not that way at all. They had, if you ever seen what the Roman city looked like, what Rome looked like in Paul's day, it, it, it defies things we do today with, with heavy equipment. All right? and they're not unsophisticated. The point here is to be minimal in your expectation of need of what it is that you need. Proverbs 30, verse 8, says it this way. I love the way Proverbs 30, 8, and 9 says it. The psalmist says, Keep deception and lies from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion. And then he gives the reason why. Listen in verse 9. That I not be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Nor that I be in want and steal and profane the name of the Lord. You see the wisdom in that? Don't make me so rich that I don't think I need you anymore because i got everything I need. And don't leave me so poor that I might be tempted to try to feed myself in the inappropriate way. Give me just what I need. And we have a word for this, right? We call it contentment. Keep me content in the right way. Not content because I have a million dollars, but content because I have just enough. Give me my daily bread. That's the sense of what we should be seeking. Is that your will when you go into prayer? It's not often mine. I can't honestly say that when I sit down and pray that I tell God, you know, I've really got more than I need right now. Give me just what I need, which implies take away some of what I have. No, I don't do that very often, do I? I sit down and I say, I'd like a little more than what I've got. Whatever it is I like, whatever we're talking about, whatever it is, food, money, clothing, car, just a little more, God, would be nice. So here again, we go back into the question I said earlier. Are you praying for his will? Are you praying for yours? Isn't he asking you here again to pray in his will? Not what we would normally want. But I also ask you this. Is this in doubt? Remember what we said earlier? We're praying for his kingdom, praying for his name. Those things aren't in doubt. Why pray for them? 
Well, wait a minute. Is your daily sustenance in doubt? In Matthew 6.31, Jesus says, Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. Your Heavenly Father knows you need all these things. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Doesn't He already know you need them? Isn't He already prepared to provide them? Here we go again, praying for something He's already planning to do. And yet He tells us to pray about our daily bread. And what about the next phrase, forgiveness of sins? Forgive us our sins? Are we not already forgiven? Is there any doubt about that? You're a believer, right? Do you worry about whether or not tomorrow, if you don't pray this prayer, you're not going to be forgiven of your sins? I certainly hope you don't think that way. Hebrews 7.26 For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because he did once for all when he offered up himself. All the sacrifice necessary to forgive you for all your sin today, tomorrow, and into the day you die has already been made available. You're forgiven. That doesn't give you license to sin. We know that. But it doesn't bring any doubt about whether you sin or if you do, whether you're forgiven. That's settled. So wait a minute. I'm praying for his name to be holy. That's a foregone conclusion. I'm praying for his kingdom to come. That's going to happen. I'm praying for the fact that I need daily sustenance. He's already told me he'll do that. Now I'm praying for the forgiveness of sins. I'm already forgiven. Jesus, I don't understand this. You're telling me to say these things. You're saying, telling me this is how I am to pray. And yet all I'm doing is declaring the truth of what you said you're going to do. Matthew 6, 8. He says, do not be like them, for the Father knows what you need before you ask him. Whoa, 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 whoa wait a minute. You already know what I'm going to say before I pray? Yes. I'm not sure I understand how this is helping me. You get the point here? We're not praying for his benefit. We're not praying because he lacks information about our needs. We're not praying because he's waiting for us to ask before he's going to act. Because his actions are already determined. We're praying so that we can understand new things through our prayer. We're praying so that we can be grown, not him. Because in that moment of prayer, as you follow the model here, you're going to reconsider your own desires and and whether or not what you're seeking is truly a part of God's will or not. Rather than wanting riches and fame, we pray for his fame and then our daily need. What does he say after forgive us our sins? Because we forgive those who sin against us. Wait a minute, did he need to know that? How is that a prayer to him? Who are are you speaking to when you say, because we forgive those who sin against us? Oh, gee, that's sort of a directed thing to me, isn't it? That's sort of a reminder to me, isn't it? That's God pointing the back at me and saying, by the way, are you doing that? Rather than pray for revenge, we remember our own sins and then we are called to forgive others. Rather than seeking our own plan on earth, we're seeking his kingdom come. You see how it all fits together? The prayer here is a model because what it, what it does is it takes our focus off of what we need, puts the focus squarely back on his will being done and us coming to where he is, not him coming to where we are. Finally, Luke records Jesus ending the prayer with the request that God lead us not into temptation. This phrase is actually a, a Greek figure of speech, an idiom in the Greek. And that's part of the reason why it reads so strangely. If you have a version of your Bible that transliterates that just tries to keep the word order as closely matching the Greek as possible, that will sometimes lead to phrasing in the English that's a bit uh, awkward. And this is maybe one of those examples. It kind of reads in the negative and, and lead us not into temptation. It sounds natural only because we've memorized it and we know it so well. But if you were to say it for the first time, you'd look at me and go, why did you say it that way? Oh, lead us not into temptation. It sounds very stilted. Because in the Greek, it actually means something a little bit different, not terribly different, But this is how you might translate it into English in the most meaningful way. It means, God, help us remain faithful to you in the face of temptation. It's not that God would ever lead us into temptation, that we should ever worry about him potentially leading us into temptation. He will never lead us into temptation. God does not tempt us. He does not cause us to sin, Scripture tells us. That that implication is really just a consequence of this odd Greek syntax. The way to look at it is simply, 
a prayer to God asking Him to help us remain strong and faithful in the moment of temptation. When we face temptation, help us through it. Help us not to succumb to it. So this prayer ends with a petition for God to strengthen us against ourselves, really. To strengthen us so we can endure and pass the tests that come in temptation. And that, I would argue, should be the constant cry of our heart in prayer. For we all have those temptations and we're all prone to fall by something, whatever it is we're prone to. And we know from Scripture, 2 Peter 2.9, for example, teaches us that God knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. And so here again, even in that last phrase, we're simply repeating something Scripture has already told us elsewhere, God knows how to do and will do according to His will. So we pray again to recognize that He is there to strengthen us so that we might avail ourselves of that protection. But it does leave open the option that it wouldn't happen. Not that He wouldn't give us the opportunity, not that He wouldn't know how to rescue us, but rather that we wouldn't know how to act on it, that we wouldn't know how to take that opportunity. Um, This, to me, is probably one of the most um, ever-present issues for me right now in my life. Everybody goes through stages in their walk. I'll confess to you all, my stage of walk right now is that as I feel God pulling me to do more in ministry, there's an equal pull in the opposite direction to be tempted by those things that will pull me off the mark in terms of my money or my time or whatever it is. And I can look back on every time I've succumbed to that temptation and I can point to where that opportunity to avoid the temptation was made available to me and how I passed it by. I mean, a clear exit sign off the road to temptation and I waved at it as I drove by. I've seen those in my life and I would challenge you, if you're tempted in some sense, in some way, and you know it's an unhealthy temptation, ask yourself, did I not see that opportunity? Did he not in fact do what he promised to do and give me a means of escape? And, and, and think through your mind in the, in the circumstances where you've been tempted and see if you don't find that moment. One example for me, um, buying something I don't need on the internet, shopping online, window shopping effectively, coming, about, coming along to something and you think, oh, that's cool. I'd love to have one of those. Really don't need it, but man, that's, you know, love to have that. Ah, oh, what the heck, it's not that much. Click buy, start going through the process to buy it. Servers down. <clears throat> Can't get it work. Credit card number's not going through. Got the wrong number. It's the wrong card. What's going on here, you know? So then I'm determined to get it. And then I work for the next hour to get past that problem until I finally get the thing bought. And I think back and I think, you know, I had every opportunity to say, whoa, wait a minute, that's a, that's a sign. Okay, shouldn't be going there. Thank you, God. Walk away. That's a, tr- that's a struggle in my life. I'm not saying I'm doing that daily, fortunately, but, but there are many days I'm worse than others. And the problem here is that God has done his part. I'm not doing mine. And then he'll let us see the consequences of our sin. So if we're determined to proceed headlong into the teeth of that lion, and we're going to suffer those consequences and learn, hopefully, for the next time. So what are we going to do with this model? What are we, what, do you feel more motivated to go out and pray this model? Probably not. At first... Probably not. I mean, now you're asking, what's the point? Well, is this a prayer? Let me ask this question. Is this the prayer that we're supposed to recite verbatim every time we pray to the Father? Is that what Jesus intended us to take this with? We hear the words, we hear the model, and now it's memorize it, write it down. And every time I pray, I start with, Our Father, art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, and what we've done. Did he expect his disciples to put aside all other prayers and adopt this specific prayer? Prayer, these words, if not these, maybe the ones in Matthew, I don't know, pick yours. Is that what he wanted? And you'll know, as I do, that many faith traditions have done that. I grew up, as I said, in a family, and in my case it was a Catholic family, so, you know, I didn't just recite this one. I could tell you Hail Marys, I could tell you the doxology, the Apostles' Creed, the Catechism of the Catholic Church. I knew all of them, because we said them every Sunday. In fact, I'll tell you that was the only prayer, if you want to call it a prayer, that we did any Sunday in my family. And I don't remember much of what I heard sitting in that pew for all the years I used to go. And in my case, because I wasn't a believer, I was being dragged to church. You know, all the years I was being dragged and made to sit in that pew, I don't remember much, if anything, that happened in that building, except these memorized prayers, because they stuck in your head, right? Later, as an adult, I, I ventured into some Protestant churches, and I was actually surprised to find that they were using many of the same verbatim prayers. A little different here. We used to say... Our trespasses in the Catholic Church, now they're saying debts and debtors. But they had all their own memorized versions of those same prayers. So, if so many churches seem to be taking that approach to this prayer, 
then is that what Jesus meant? Learn these words, memorize them, and then repeat them over and over again every time you want to dialogue with the Father. (laughs) Just, Just think about it logically for a moment. What was the purpose of the disciples' question to Jesus? They said, teach us to pray. They didn't say, teach us a prayer. They said, teach us to pray like John teaches his disciples. And as his students, they desired to learn something that they felt was crucial to their walk in their life. Let me give you an example. What if Jesus had been a carpenter? Well, wait a minute. He was a carpenter. What if he had been a professional carpenter, a master carpenter? His purpose in life was to be a carpenter. And so his disciples here were really just uh, apprentices. Carpenter apprentices. And they were to walk up to him and say, uh, Jesus, teach us how to frame a house. What would he have done? I mean, how would he have gone about doing that? Well, he probably would have said things like, well, here's how you diagram and design and, and, and create blueprints, and here's how you measure and cut, and here's how you frame, and here's how you hammer, and here's how you put the whole thing together. But he probably would have done that in the context of what? In the context of building a house. He would have taken them onto the job site, and he would have said, now let me exa- show you what I'm talking about. He would have built the house, framed the house, while explaining how to frame the house. Or if he had been a chef, you know, how to teach us how to make a cake. Well, I'm going to talk about ingredients. I'm going to talk about you know, all the things that go into making a cake. And then I'm going to bake one while I show you how it works. Now, what if they had taken from that experience and said, okay, every time I go build a house, I'm going to frame and build exactly the house he showed me to build when he taught it to me. I'm a great carpenter, but I only know how to build one house. I'm a great chef, but every time you ask me to make something, I come out with the same cake. Which is ludicrous. <laughs> Do you think that if in those contexts we, we have no problem looking at A single example is simply a model and working from that model the next time, but yet doing it differently. If those contexts have that expectation and we don't have any problem with that, then why in this context do we get all wrapped around the words? In a word, pride. Because we want to make ourselves holy. Even after we've been saved by grace, we want to work our way to heaven, though we know better. And we get trapped, if we're not careful, into thinking that if I say the words the right way, I'm pleasing God, I'm earning some favor with him, and I'm doing the right thing. You can't. You can't earn favor with God by your actions. There's nothing you can do that he, doesn't, that he needs. There's nothing you can do that can please him apart from faith. So the words themselves are not magical. It's a dialogue. And, this is a, and in fact, this is especially true in prayer. If it were not true in baking or in carpentry, it's especially true in prayer that it makes no sense at all to repeat the same words over and over again if the purpose is a dialogue. I mean, if you bring exactly the same words to every conversation you have with your spouse, try that for a week. Try it for a day. See how long that lasts. Right? Every time you engage in a conversation, you respond with exactly the same set of words. We know that's ludicrous. We know that is silly. And may, maybe many of us are beyond this point in our own walk, but there are many others who are not. And they, can, they, are, they struggle over the fact that they come to this section of Scripture and they think, well, maybe I am just supposed to say these words. And I'm not saying if you do, that that may not be a, a prayer that the Father takes delight in, because if he knows your heart is to do the right thing and you just aren't aware of what you could be doing, he'll take what he gets. What I am saying, though, is in studying the Scripture the right way, we can come to a better understanding here this morning. And in that understanding, we can see it as a model. It was not intended to be memorized and mindlessly recited over and over again. In fact, when Matthew teaches the Our Father, I find this particularly striking to me. Because while we're so busy memorizing and citing these scripture references, this prayer, particularly the one out of Matthew, if we were only willing to go into the Word and actually learn it, we only have to go two verses higher in Matthew and hear this. When you pray, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. You see, isn't that amazing? Right before the Our Father, those are the two verses that we find in Scripture. And what have we done with the verses out of the Our Father? We've turned them into mindless, meaningless repetition in many circles. Let's not be joining in that. Let's see it for what it is. It is simply an opportunity to examine the model, the elements that should be a part of our prayer. It's not a mantra. It's not a chant. Because when we turn it into one, it becomes a monologue instead of a dialogue. So that's all we're going to do for this week because I felt that touching on prayer was an important um, subject all on its own. And we'll move beyond into chapter 11 more properly next week. But I, 
I want to challenge you as we move into this week, because my personal challenge God gave me on my heart after I studied this was, number one, first and foremost, you're not praying enough. And the reason you're not praying enough is because you don't believe it's as big a priority in your life as I do, as God does, meaning. And the reason you're not praying enough is pretty simple. It's because you're not devoting time to it. Because you're not making time available to it. Because you're not orchestrating your calendar and your days so that you'll have time to do it. So my personal commitment, and I I want you to hold me to it, is to be better about taking time out of my day to pray without necessarily a knee driving me to my knees. And I would ask you to perhaps, if you're not already feeling this way, to give some thought to whether or not you and your prayer time in your week to come might have a similar opportunity to be better about it, to, to see it in a new light, to spend more time on it. So if you've learned something new about prayer or you've maybe renewed your desire and your commitment to pray, then I'd ask you to pray with me here this morning as we finish. And specifically, I would ask that if you have an intention and you desire to, in, to join us in prayer, that you would speak up in this room now, in this moment, from your seat. Or if you would prefer to be silent and keep it in your, in your own heart, that's fine as well. God hears all prayers. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we've opened your word, and as always, Father, you've brought a message that you prepared for us, a message, Father, that I'm sure many of us know we need. And not just, Father, a message on the way to pray, on the specifics and the method of prayer, though that's important. Perhaps more than anything, Father, just on the need to pray, period, on the when, not on the how. May our heart's desire, Father, be to conform ourselves to your will, because your ways, Father, though they are not our ways, are the best way. And we would desire, Father, to be used mightily by you, individually and corporately as a church. And if we are to be used in that way, Father, we need to know your will, to be doing your will, to believe in it. And by prayer, Father, we may have those opportunities. I I would ask, Father, that you would, in the Holy Spirit's power, guide each of us this week into a greater appreciation and opportunity to pray. That it would be a bigger part of our spiritual walk. That we would come with whatever petitions we have, Father. That we would not be afraid to bring anything we think we need before you. That we need not be afraid, Father, that our prayers would not be right in some way. But rather, Father, just trusting in you that as we do seek you in prayer, the Holy Spirit will guide our speech and will give us the desires of our heart and will turn us, Father, toward your will in time and according to your power. And I pray, Father, you would open those doors for us this week. Give us a heart to be obedient, to respond as we know we should. 